0: Hello, this is Joellen Trilling. Even if you don't do any kind of exercise, I hope that this year, in November, you will exercise your right to vote. It's no secret that your vote counts. Thank you.
1: Judgment calls that people ask me to make about like what Byron would think about certain things. Uh, we think a lot of these are buried, like on uh, in in federally protected parks. And people people wonder, would Byron you know do that? Would he go into this park and dig a hole and and then expect people you know forty years later to go and tear up this park? And I don't I don't really I don't really know Byron, so I don't I don't know how to answer that.
0: I'm just trying to imagine Byron digging.
1: yeah apparently um apparently on his and sandy's first date they were in uh san francisco and he had to leave the date early so he could bury one of these really so yeah so so there's uh we think um this is all sort of speculative but we think there's one in san francisco There's one in Houston, Texas, New Orleans, St. Augustine, Florida, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Roanoke, North Carolina. Um, There was one in Chicago and one in Cleveland. Those have both been found. One in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, one somewhere in New York, and one in Montreal. How many have been found? Two. Two. One was found in 1984 and one was found in 2004. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So... My, my thing was, like I, like I said, we nobody there's a couple of people involved in the hunt that got to talk to Byron that had sort of a, a friendly relationship with him.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but other than that, we don't know much about the man. And we we spend so much time sort of poring over all of his work that I thought it might be a good idea to just talk to someone who was a, a friend of his, you know, mm-hmm. so we could get more of an idea of of what Byron was like as a person.
0: Yeah, well, we were pretty close. We, we we both met our future wives, I think the, either the same day or the same week, and uh, I I was trying to remember where we first met. It it had to have been at a comic book convention, but I don't know if it was at the 1972 EC convention or if it was at Comic Con. Might have been. It seems more likely that it was Comic Con, but you know, very early on. Uh, so so
1: should we call you Bill or William? Yeah, just What's call me prefer? Bill.
0: Are we going to upset people if we start early like this? No. Okay. no. So oh, is it is it live or is it are you going to edit it? No, it's
1: not live. We're going to edit it. Oh, okay. And and what I'll do is I'll uh it, it, just in case you want, I'll um shoot you a copy before it gets published so that oh, you cool. can make sure everything's okay. Like, I don't want to, I know another thing that, that John Palankar was sort of irritated with is he's done interviews in the past and especially talking about Byron, he gets kind of choked up and yeah. the interviews sort of play into that with drama and make him seem.
0: Yeah. I, I was pretty much a basket case at uh, Byron's memorial at Comic-Con. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. I heard, I, I read something about that, but, but, God, if I could find those recordings, those, those, that would be amazing to see. Have you talked to Sandy? I have not. Sandy has asked, um, I've, I've sent a couple of emails back and forth, but for the most part, I think Sandy and the kids, uh, we sort of show them the respect of, you know, sort of leaving them alone yeah um the treasure hunting community gets a little crazy like i said with people showing up at john's house and just yeah. calling wow. him out of the blue and, <laughs> we 100 don't want that to happen to sandy right um i mean ben ben was on the podcast and then people started you know blowing up his email can't really find his phone numbers luckily um and in fact, if that ever happens, if people start just shooting you emails about the treasure hunt, forward them to me and I'll take care of it. Or just tell them, you have know, you don't know anything Tell them I know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me do a little intro here. Uh, a second. Uh, welcome to The Secret Podcast. This is George Ward. I'm here with John Hartepey and we have a bit of a special guest today. Byron Price was a, a bit of a legend to those of us in the secret community. We... We pour over his words and we tear through his books, trying to get a small glimpse of the man behind the page. What were his motivations? What were his hopes, his dreams, his goals? Why did he think ducks honked instead of geese? I've spent many years talking to people who admire Byron. But the last two years, I've begun talking to people who knew him. People from Ben Ason to John Palencar, and they've all said the same thing. If you want to know who Byron was, talk to William Stout. The exact quote I was actually given was, I don't know a single person closer to, or that Byron admired more than Bill. You may not know William Stout by name, but you know his work. Bill's worked on films like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Conan, Predator, Men in Black, Pan's Labyrinth, Masters of the Universe. Bill has a passion for dinosaurs and paleontological art. He published, uh, The Dinosaurs, a fantastic new view of a lost era, as well as one of my favorite childhood books, The Little Blue Brontosaurus. Uh, which received the 1984 Children's Choice Award with Byron. His art's been featured at the Smithsonian, the British Museum, the Royal Ontario Museum, and the American Museum of Natural History. Bill has camped in Antarctica, climbed volcanoes, designed theme parks, worked with people like Jack Kirby and Robert Crumb and Harvey Kurtzman, Steven Spielberg, and he's graciously taking the time out of his day to talk to us about his friend Byron. So thank you. Thank you, Bill, for being here with us.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Happy, happy to talk about Byron, who's like a brother to me.
1: So you were saying you you uh, you were saying earlier you you couldn't remember if you met Byron at a comic con or at an EC Comics convention.
0: Right. If if it was EC Comics convention, it would have been in 1972 because that's when I was working with uh, Kurtzman and Elder on Little Annie Fanny. But it seems more likely that it was probably. a One of the early comic cons in San Diego.
1: Now, did you guys meet through a a business thing or were you just two, you know, people being represented at the convention? I think Byron saw my work and liked it.
0: And uh, we Mm -hmm. immediately
1: began to talk about
0: uh, collaborating.
1: What was the what was the first thing you guys collaborated on? Uh, I remember um, there was a uh, there was a comic that you did was it was it the it wasn't the Kurtzman comic well
0: I know one of the early things we did uh we were both gigantic Beach Boys fans Mm -hmm. and uh so I contributed to the illustrated Beach Boys biography I he got a a number of different artists to each to illustrate a song including Harvey Kurtzman and the song I did was 409 and then when Byron came out uh, one of the times he came out to LA we both uh, went to a Beach Boys concert because he had that connection and we were able to get backstage after the show.
1: So that was pretty cool. I heard a story once that you were, you're, you're the first, uh, American painter, first American painter that was featured in heavy metal magazine.
0: Yeah, that might be true.
1: (laughs) I heard a story that you were featured there because Byron gave your work to the magazine in exchange for advertising.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I didn't get any money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What? What could he, just advertising in general, or was he advertising anything specific? It,
0: it was, uh, well, the, the story that we're talking about was a Harlan Ellison story. Uh, Byron and I were very close to Harlan. And this was for the Harlan, the illustrated Harlan Ellison uh, graphic novel book. Not really a graphic novel, but a collection of short stories, each each story illustrated by a different artist. And it wasn't really done so much comic book style is EC picto fiction style for those not familiar with EC picto fiction that was uh, blocks of text with heavily illustrated by comic book art and so that was the way the illustrated Harlan Ellison was done uh, the story I did was a story called shattered like a glass goblin it was about a guy who was sectionated out of the army this is during the Vietnam War and he comes back to LA to rejoin the people that he was living with uh, before he got drafted. And uh, they're in this old sort of Victorian house in Los Angeles, and the other people are heavily into drugs, and he starts to get into drugs, and things start to really change and get weird. So that story, by the way, uh, was responsible for getting me hired uh, doing artwork for the first Conan the Barbarian movie. Ron Cobb asked me, Ron Cobb really wanted me to be, work on the film with him, uh, but he had a deal with John Millius, the writer-director, and that was uh, John had veto power over anybody that Ron wanted to bring into the art department, and vice versa. Ron had veto power over anybody that Millius wanted to bring into the art department. So Ron asked me if I would leave my portfolio with Milius, and I thought it might be interesting to learn how films are made. And so I, I went to the Conan offices, and Millius happened to be there. And so I handed my book to him. He flipped through it. And when he got to that story, his eyes lit up. It was a favorite story of his. Uh, he remembered reading it in heavy metal. And then he had me back my book and John's a sort of bigger than life character. And as he got to the doorway over his shoulder, he barked, hire him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went in to see uh, Buzz Feichen's, the line producer. He told me what I would be making on Conan. And I, nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising at the time. But I thought it might be interesting
1: to see how films were made. So one of the, one of the, one of the problems that I've had, I've I've done quite a bit of research in, into you, but one of the problems that I've into you, Bill, but one of the problems that I've had is there's not a lot of information about you and Byron. There's not a lot of, Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a, I guess because it was sort of a, a lot of that interaction at least with publishing or in business was before the internet. It was before. So, so it's not really. um, Yeah. It's not not really done anywhere. Yeah. Um, Could you sort of give me, give, give us an idea of sort of a, how did, how did you and Byron work together? What, what projects were you, were you um, what projects did you guys work together on?
0: Let's see. Well, I, in all my work, I, I pretty much insist on a lot of freedom. And, and Byron was willing to give me that. One of the things that I really admired about Byron, he was constantly pushing the envelope and, and uh, testing or just trying to do different things with uh, the medium of comics. And uh, Illustrated Harlan Nelson was one thing. Uh, he did s- some uh, educational autobiographies for kids, like he did. He got Harvey Kurtzman to write uh, an autobiography for kids. Uh, he. Let's see, we did the uh, Ray Bradbury's Dinosaur Tales together. I did the cover and I illustrated Sound of Thunder. And then he got different artists, including Overton, Lloyd, and Jim Starenko to illustrate the other stories and Mobius. And let's see, he was, well, he was always trying to do different things with comics, which I, I just really admired him for that. Because some stuff, some stuff would fail, some stuff wouldn't, some stuff would be highly successful. But the fact that he took that chance, uh, that really impressed me.
1: Yeah, he he got a lot of flack when he first started doing the graphic novels because he did it in a completely different format, right? It was right. like you were saying the the pictorial novel kind of thing, as opposed to, um, oh, what's it called the 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 spread of comics that you're used to now. There were no like thought. There were no. Uh, speech bubbles for right. instance in his and and that's something that i've heard a lot about byron uh in addition to pushing pushing the envelope of of whatever project he was in he tended to surround himself with with newer people in those fields like the sort of the newer upcoming artists the people who he knew were going to be great uh i think uh Palencar was telling me that he would just take interns that he, he could see potential in people so he would just take interns and and Send them off on their own projects.
0: Well, part of that was that, in, in many ways, Byron was similar to my friend Roger Corman.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Roger Corman gave lots of young filmmakers their first break, uh, just the way Byron did in comics, and the re- and they both had the same reason: new guys were inexpensive.
1: <laughs> I guess that is true. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's weird. It's weird that it seems like the people that Byron surrounded himself became some of the mo- more successful people that I, that the general public knows about, you know, he well, definitely it, had an eye for talent. Yeah. Yeah. It's it that, just that circle of people, the, 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 um, the national lampoon, uh, heavy metal, the artists that he worked with, they're all amazing, amazing talents in their own field now, but back then, you know, they weren't so well known. But on the other hand, he, he
0: would, get a lot of big name talent as well. Like, like Jim Storenko and Mobius. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. So I'll tell you how the dinosaur book came about. Uh, we, we had already done a number of projects together and Byron was in Los Angeles visiting me and he was at my studio at a studio on La Brea, not far from the tar pits. And I had done a whole bunch of illustrations for a friend's book. Uh, His friend was Don Glute. Don Glute had written a book called The Dinosaur Dictionary, and there had been so many new dinosaurs found. uh, Don decided it was time to revise the book. And his goal was to have at least one image per listing. And he asked me if I would do four pictures, and that four turned into 44. And while Byron was visiting, he said, Bill, if you could do your own book on anything, what would you do? Now, I thought he was just being conversational. I didn't realize that was a serious question on his part. And I really didn't have an answer. And he looked and he saw all these dinosaur dictionary pictures laying around my studio. And he said, Oh, well, would you like to do one on dinosaurs? I said, Sure, yes, that'd be fun. Forgot about it. Two months later, I get a phone call from Byron. Bill, we got our book deal. Bantam Books wants to do your dinosaur book. I suddenly had this gigantic project dropped in my lap. And while I was doing the dinosaur dictionary pictures, I thought, you know, this may be the only image of this creature that the public ever gets to see, so it had better be accurate. So I started working from the skeletons and contacting the paleontologists who had actually discovered the animals. And uh, this was before email, so I had to snail mail my sketches back and forth until we were both happy. And I also began studying paleobotany because the plants had to be accurate as well. Well, while I was doing the dinosaur book, um, I mean, the, the main impetus for doing that book was not just to do a dinosaur book, but because I was privy to all kinds of knowledge in the field of paleontology that wasn't getting to the public yet. It was just sort of slowly but surely trickling down. I was part of a loose group called the Dinosaur Society of Los Angeles, and if there was a visiting paleontologist in town, that person would end up as our guest speaker. So through all these incredible guest speakers, I was finding out that dinosaurs weren't slow, they weren't stupid, they were fast, they took care of their young, a lot of them had feathers, and I thought this book would be ideal for putting all of this new information about dinosaurs together in one package for the public. And so after we got our book deal, I started to do the illustrations. And as I was doing them, I I was concerned that if I did them on all the same style that the public would be bored and and perhaps I would be bored in the process. So I started imagining what would it look like if Andrew Wyeth did a dinosaur painting? And so I would do one in the style of Andy Wyeth. What would it look like if N.C. Wyeth did a dinosaur painting? What would it look like if Mobius did dinosaurs? And so I was experimenting with all these different styles. At that time, I had a reputation in Los Angeles as the guy who could duplicate any style. And that was some of the work that I got. My very first movie poster was a film called Spies. The original poster was done by Rick Marowitz, the National Lampoon cartoonist. And uh, it starred Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland, and an actress named Zuzu. Well, he had blown the caricatures of Elliot Gould and Zuzu, and he refused to change them. So they sent the poster back to Los Angeles. They called me up and they said, we need you to redraw Elliot Gould and Zuzu, but in Rick's style, and, uh, but make it look like them. And so I did. That was my very first movie poster.
1: So something that I love about dinosaurs, uh, the dinosaurs book that you did with Byron, when, when I remember dinosaur books from when I was a kid, they were they were emotionless. You know, you saw like the illustrators would illustrate a Tyrannosaurus Rex from the side. Right. Just straight portraits. Yeah. And these illustrations were really sort of, I think they were the first glimpse kids had into the life of dinosaurs, how dinosaurs interacted with each other, how they interacted as a family. Um, And that's something that I I kind of admire about your work, especially in this book. Um, Was that important to you when you were That was really important to me? I
0: did not want to do a a catalog of dinosaur portraits. I thought that would be incredibly dull And, and it wouldn't, honor the dinosaurs. There had been so much new information being found out about them. I was really intrigued by their lifestyle and, and speculating on, on how they lived, how, how they made it, uh, what kind of stuff they ate, even how they pooped. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> well, and, dude, it's, it, it's funny, but that's important information to know. And it, it's it's important to be able to put that sort of the lo- their lives into a context.
0: Oh, yeah, I agree. So, uh, originally, I think the goal from that was set by Bantam was to, I think there was about 30 color illustrations and 20 black and white. And I I started to trick them. I would do the black and white illustrations in full color and they'd get them, they'd go, well, we can't print this in black and white, it's gorgeous. I said, well, okay. So by doing that over and over and over, I got the numbers up to about 80 color plates and about 50 black and white illustrations. So that that was my wily little plan that that succeeded, and as the pictures were coming in, uh, Bannon kept upping the first printing numbers. I think originally uh, the first printing was going to be two thousand copies, and by the time it went to publication, it was a quarter of a million. <laughs> they really had they really believed in that book. Thank God.
1: And yeah, that's uh, awesome not so much in the secret. I think they went to 25,000. Wow. Yeah. That book was nothing. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of, this kind of leads me into the, into the second book though. You guys also, uh, did little blue Brontosaurus. It, it Now right. this, this book has a bit of a, the story of how this book came about has kind of a sad ending with what happened to the property. But yeah. how did, how did, um, how did this book come about? I know, I, I know, uh, there's, really only one or two interviews that we have of Byron but mm-hmm. but from those interviews it's very obvious that that his passion was children and getting children to read via through comic books through electronic through ebooks um, or through just children's books uh, so was it just his passion of children plus your passion of of dinosaurs that brought this book together or was there a plan
0: well, that's the side of Baron that I really loved. Uh, in many respects, he was an extremely charitable guy, and he, he was passionate about, about getting kids to read. Also, uh, with every book that we did, he would also uh, issue a Braille edition so that uh, there would be an edition for the blind as well. And I, I thought that was a wonderful thing, wonderful policy that he had. So we we co-wrote the Little Blue Brontosaurus, and then I did the layouts and painted the cover and designed the characters and uh, did a few of the interior pieces. But the bulk of the story art was done by Don Morgan over my layouts. Don at the time was ghosting uh, Pogo, the Walt Kelly strip. So he was, uh, for style-wise, it was ideal uh, because I wanted that really sort of Disney-esque, Walt Kelly-esque style uh, for the book. Unfortunately, uh, the book was published by Cadman. Now, that was Cadman's very first book. Prior to that, uh, basically, they were a spoken record company. So there is a a record, too, that you can get of a little and But because it was their first book, they sort of dropped the ball when it came to distribution and a number of things. Here's a book that won the Children's Choice Award for 1984, and I couldn't find it in any bookstores. Oh yeah, it's and very it was rare even now. difficult
1: to special order as well. So it was incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I I'm I'm lucky. I've got a I've got a copy of this signed by Byron, but I also have my copy from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean not not to just, you know, not just because you're on the podcast. This was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. Oh. So thank you. Thank you for like the illustrations are amazing. The uh, the illustration that I love more than any there's a black and white of of blue Hiding uh, beside the Stegosaurus, uh-huh. and and when I was a kid, it was just it was my favorite. I, I don't know, I love it. Oh, that's it. cool. Well, yeah, you, you might be happy to know I wrote a sequel. I, I oh, kept pushing Byron
0: to write a sequel, or uh, or at least begin the the second book. And I I think he was just so busy with so many projects. I finally got tired of waiting, and I just wrote the sequel myself. It was called It was called Little Blue's Big Race. And I also did a, a full color cover for it. Is it out or no? It never came out. I, I'm oh. hoping to put it out eventually because I, I still am a big believer in that project.
1: Hmm. I mean, it was it, it was a beloved it was a beloved book to so many people. The people that could the people that could get it because right now, I mean, I don't know if you've looked, but if you go on Amazon or eBay, it's it's nuts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've I've yeah. seen
0: it for two hundred. <laughs> wow okay the guy who's got the most of them he and he scours the country for them when he travels is uh Stuart ing of Stuart ing mm-hmm. books he's usually got about three to six copies in his shop
1: so this this book ended badly it was i don't know if you can say this so i'll say it The basically the concept and the art was kind of taken from you and yes. used to make um land before time that's correct and, and, I- and to put salt in the wounds uh Lucas
0: and Spielberg hired hired me to do some of the advertising for the land before time.
1: <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Yeah. I, I hear I love irony it, except when it happens to me. Yeah. I hear that Byron wanted to sue George Lucas <laughs> yeah. and Steven Sue so well, over this. Can can you talk about that at all? Yeah. Yeah, he did.
0: Uh now I don't think Lucas was aware of my book. I, I think it was all Steven because uh When I started in the film business with Conan, our receptionist was Kathleen Kennedy, and Steven Spielberg's office was right across from my office. So Ron Cobb and I would work on Conan during the day and then just jump across the hall to Steven's office and kick around ideas for his next film project, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And within two months of my being there, Kathy became John Millis' personal assistant. And about two months after that, she was Steven Spielberg's personal assistant. And within two years, she produced E.T. Kind of a step up. So yeah. incredibly fast drive. But a, a producer friend of mine was uh, visiting Kathy at her office, and he saw the little brubronosaurus on her desk. So there's no doubt that they were aware of my book. And but the problem was I was working in the film business. Well, to sue Spielberg would be (laughs) career suicide. Yeah, that's a death note. I know. I knew we would win because it was clearly stolen from us. But you know, it was just one of those. Yeah, you would lose in the long term, definitely. Yep. And, And since then, I've done a lot of work for Spielberg. So that that never would have happened if I had sued him.
1: And I'm I'm sure that topic never comes up in conversation. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I, I've I've got to ask. Um. What was it you, you did the storyboards for Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I did some of them.
0: I, I just did a handful to help Stephen out. Uh, I was working on the sequence where we, where India is fighting the Nazi on the truck. Oh. And it became pretty clear to me. I really needed to just focus on Conan. I couldn't do both films at once. And so I recommended a really good friend of mine to take over for me. That was Dave Stevens, the creator of The Rocketeer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So Dave ended up uh, doing the storyboards for Raiders Lost Ark. And then I, I gave, a couple of years later, I gave Dave another great job. John Landis called me up. He wanted me to storyboard Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I was just, boy, up to my ears and work. There's no way I could squeeze that in. So again, I recommended Dave and and Dave storyboard, a thriller for John Landis. And then Michael Jackson really fell in love with Dave's art. And so Michael started to hire Dave for a lot of other projects as well.
1: So you're um, just completely out of left field here. Your your relationship with Byron, um, you guys were very close. You've described yourself as brothers. We're really close. And it was a really rocky relationship, I got to tell you. (laughs) I've heard that. From a lot of people who work with Byron on the business side, it gets a little rocky, but yeah. it seems like he knew how to keep his professional life separate from his business life.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. The, personally we were best of friends, Yeah. but business-wise I would have huge blow up fights with the guy because <laughs> I mean, typically here's <laughs> the way he, you, you know, Byron didn't want to pay hardly anything to any of the artists. I mean, I, that's, that's no secret. He was very tight with a dollar. Uh, but the way he would get people to work for him, he would offer you a dream project that you would go, Oh my God, I would, I would almost do that for free. Well, if you're working for Byron, you almost did do it for free. But uh, you know, that was, it was, it was always this incredible enticement. I remember, you know, both Byron and I were huge fans of Mobius and I was, Really pleased and surprised to learn that Byron was doing an Art of Mobius book. And he sent me a copy of the limited edition after it was published. And I went through it and I immediately saw that entire signature, I think it was 16 pages, were missing from the book. That, you know, they were in the softcover edition, the regular edition, but not in the hardcover limited edition. I called him up and I said, Byron, you just gave new meaning to the word limited. And, and Byron said, I I know he said, I I just thank God it wasn't one of your books. (laughs) I would have torn him a new one, but Mobius is a much kinder, gentler person than I am.
1: So, so yeah, I've, I've heard this about, but like, this is, you're right. It's not a secret that Byron was a little bit stingy when it came to money. Um, And, and it's also not a secret that he gave people their dream, their dream jobs. Um, What? What? And that dinosaur book that really launched me in the world of
0: paleontology. You know, I'll be forever grateful for that. It really put me on the map as one of the leading paleo artists. And, and while I was in the middle of doing the book, of course, the deadline was looming, and eventually, I didn't have time to ape other people's styles, and so I just started producing, 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 and out of that came my own style. Because previous to that dinosaur book, I really didn't have my own style. I, I would just, I would uh, just adapt if I choose a style that I thought was best solve the problem that was presented
1: to me. But
0: uh, so I was really happy to see that my own style emerged out of that intense amount of work.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were to show me the dinosaur book and then show me the, the cover of Coven thirteen and say this is the same artist, I would I would call you a liar. Yeah. That's it, it's just two yeah. completely different
0: Right. And even in *Coven 13, when I was doing the black and white interiors, I was working in different styles. I did one that was like a Brad Holland style picture. And, you know, there's 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 actually I was the first to illustrate a Harlan Ellis story called Rock God. And I I I don't know if I had just worked with Jack Kirby or just was really into Jack's work. But I, I did a sort of a Kirby esque illustration for that.
1: What are do you have a a favorite a a favorite story of Byron personally? I I know um, you guys got together quite a bit. I I read that like every after every Comic Con he would buy you dinner. And um, do you do you have a favorite story of a time you guys were together? Boy, well, it's not a very interesting story, but I
0: think it was the last time. Or at least one of the last times that we were together, uh, they always Byron and Sandy all stayed at the. Uh, oh gosh. The hotel with the polo lounge it was at the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Bel Air. Anyway, it was you know a very luxurious hotel, and our one of our last conversations was he he noticed that I had started publishing, and so he just barraged me with all this incredible publishing advice that he had. Garnered over the years, and that was, uh, I, I was amazed. It was, he was treating me in a different way. You know, our, our sort of brother relationship sometimes I was the big brother, sometimes he was the little brother, and sometimes it was vice versa. Uh, we were constantly in touch with each other and giving each other advice and, you know, alerting each other to things that we thought the other guy would like. We were also, uh, you know, we got married around the same time. Our wives knew each other and liked each other. And, and then we, we both started having kids. And so I remember for one of his daughters, I, I don't think it was her birthday. I think it was her bat mitzvah. I, I gave her an uh, original dinosaur illustration.
1: Um, speaking of that, was, uh, Byron was Byron was very religious yes. from what we're told. Um, he went to synagogue. Um, how... And he was sort of a, a what I would call a,
0: a, a classic good Jew in that he seemed to take on the, the, the worries and the troubles of the world. I mean, I'd be with him in Manhattan. We'd pass a newsstand, and he read the headline of some disaster, and he would take it very personally, even though he didn't know anybody involved. He just had a very big, empathetic heart. Right. And, you know, his, his father was involved. And getting Siegel and Schuster paid in regards to Superman.
1: It, it just, it blows my mind, this, this little book. And I, and I know you, you don't really know much about it, but all of the stories that we hear about the book, the secret that he published, it, it seems less like a, like a, like a job for Byron, it seemed like he wanted to do a a cool project with a bunch of friends. So he literally got a bunch of his friends together to do this, this project. And like I was saying before that circle of friends and the things that, that Byron was involved in, like, like the, the Superman lawsuit that is, that his father helped with, it's just crazy how much Byron indirectly impacted so much of what the public now loves. You know, with without without Byron, there's no there's no Aragon books. You know, without mm-hmm. without without Byron, there's no Little Bl- Blue Brontosaurus. Without Byron, the, Byron had his hand in so many things.
0: Without Byron, I wouldn't have a career as a paleo artist.
1: <laughs> exactly, and and you know, yeah. that's just. I mean, so many people owe. It seems so many people owe so much to Byron. Mm-hmm. Um. He still owes me, though. (laughs) Oh, okay. I got it. He
0: never paid me for my Oz book illustrations.
1: Yeah, I heard uh, you guys did the uh, the Oz graphic novels.
0: Well, actually, they weren't graphic novels, they were brand new Oz novels. They were prose, and uh, they were written by Sherwood Smith, and uh, they were officially sanctioned by the Baum family. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, uh, one of our dinners in Beverly Hills was with uh, the surviving Baum family members. And so uh, the first book we did was going to be called Flying Monkeys of Oz. And then it was discovered that uh, Michael Myers was had a regular routine on Saturday Night Live where he talked about monkeys flying out of his ass. So we couldn't use that title. <laughs> So they changed it to a title that I thought was even more salacious, which was the Emerald Wand of Oz, which uh, we began to refer to as the Emerald Schwanza of Oz. And it was it was a strange situation because Byron sent me the manuscript and I read. I'm a huge Oz fan. I have every single Oz first edition in my collection, and I read the novel and it was just awful. It was it was written by someone who had no idea of what Oz was, had no idea of what the charm of Oz was or how an Oz book should be written. And I I was just furious. And I wrote a blistering, I think it was probably about a 12-page letter detailing every atrocity in that novel. And a few months later, he sent me another one. He said, you know, I had it rewritten. And I couldn't believe it. it was like day and night. It was absolutely brilliant. And it was, it was so dead on and spot on as an Oz book, I couldn't believe it was by the same person. And I found out later it wasn't by the same person. I don't know who he got to write that first one, but it wasn't Sherwood Smith because I ran into Sherwood Smith. We were both guests at the San Diego Comic Fest. And that's when I found out that uh, she had written the, the book that I ended up illustrating, The Emerald Wand of Oz. And uh, she also wrote the second book, which Trouble Under Oz. And so those were for Harper Collins. Uh, Harper Collins paid me. They didn't pay me directly though. they paid the money to Byron. Byron was supposed to pay me. He didn't pay me. He used that money to do something else. And so I never got paid on those books. And, uh, and the third book I was going to do as a tribute to Byron and I was really going to knock myself out and do my absolute best, most elaborate Oz pictures. But since I didn't get paid on the second book, I didn't, you know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And then obviously Harper Collins in their minds, well, they had paid me, so they weren't going to pay me again. So the third book just sort of dissolved into
1: the vapors. Well, we're uh, Byron and you, obviously share a lot of loves byron seemed yeah. to be passionate about music did you share yeah. the same sort of passions oh
0: i'm i'm, I'm nuts about music i i wrote uh, a book called legends of the blues it's 100 portraits of my favorite blues musicians born prior to 1930 and then i wrote all the biographies inside the book byron and i as i said Byron and i were both gigantic beach boys fans yeah
1: I actually, I actually own that book and the, and the crumb book before it. So yeah, I did all the guys that
0: Robert didn't draw. (laughs) And before I did the book, I got Robert's blessing on the book. Cause I I told him, I said, if you consider this your turf, I'll drop it like a hot potato. But uh, he got back to me and
1: said, I can't wait to see what you do. I would, I would love to just know what it's like to be able to just call Robert Crumb and be like, Hey, can I do that? (laughs) Well, watch the Crumb documentary. That's a really good portrait of Robert. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it. It's yeah. great. Um, do you know, do you know anything about Byron's taste in music? Do you know what he likes, uh, what he didn't like? Other than
0: Beach Boys? Oh, oh, he turned me on to the Rubenews. Um, I don't think I know the Rubenews. I think, I think they're an East coast band. They're very power pop. Oh, and when he would come to LA, I take him to shows. I took him to see Oingo Boingo. Um, <laughs> man, I, I took him to see my old band, The Heaters. And he was knocked out by the heaters. He what He didn't like Buengo. I think it was a little too harsh for him. But uh, he loved Power Pop. He loved stuff with good melodies.
1: Huh.
0: Do you know? Um, I think the Rupino song he turned me on to is "I Want to Be Your Boyfriend."
1: Um, something that we sort of struggle with because we didn't know him. We we don't know his we don't know his motivations. We don't know the things that inspired him. Um, do you know if Byron had any? Any specific inspirations? What what art? Do you know what artists he was inspired by? What authors? Well, I know he loved comics, and mm-hmm. as far as authors go, he he was
0: crazy about Harlan Ellison and crazy about Ray Bradbury. It was Byron who directly introduced me to Ray Bradbury, which I'll also be forever grateful for because Ray and I became really good close friends. And so those were two writers he admired enormously. And then he liked a lot of the, the better comic book artists as well. And then I turned him on to a lot of the early children's book illustrators of the 20th century. Uh, people like Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, the Detmo brothers. Uh, often I would come to New York to the big Antiquarian Book Fair and go with Byron and I would buy loads of these fantastic illustrated books. And then he would do the same. We'd go together when it was in L.A. and just uh, – Add to our
1: collection. Hmm. I guess tying back into the, the, the book we're interested about, do you know mm-hmm. if Byron was inspired by puzzles in any way? Do you know if he, well, I guess we're, we, what I'm trying to figure out and what we're all trying to figure out is this this book that he wrote, The Secret, is so, is so strange. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. different. Um, and no one really knows what inspired him to do it. And it's such a huge project to take on. Yeah. And, and sort of out of left field, like, let's just make a big puzzle. Um, generally, people who are really into those sort of things are, are the people who take on those projects. So uh, it, it's always been a big question of what inspired Byron, how would he even come up with this idea? What, you know, what inspired him to make it? I, I but, would guess
0: that it's probably slightly related to another project we did together, Uh, Byron did a a whole series of books called the time machine books, which were very similar to the choose your own adventure books. Mm -hmm. I illustrated covers to, I think about six of them and uh, they gave you the opportunity to read a book, you know, two dozen different ways depending upon which path you decided to take when you're given a choice. Right. So to me, that, that tells me that he had a, a sort of a fun gaming puzzle sensibility that was at least partially indicated by that series of books
1: yeah i think uh i think john palancar illustrated a couple of those something Mm -hmm. there was something about uh images that you could move around and one image would make multiple different images that he was telling me about once but i've never been able to physically hold those books i've never i've never seen them before they sound very interesting
0: yeah they're cool the i mean uh, one of the paleo artists i admire the most is a guy i turned byron on to Uh, Doug Henderson, and Doug illustrated uh, the two different dinosaur books that I did the covers for, or the prehistoric life books that I did the cover for, and I I think he had, since Doug's style didn't lend itself to reproduction on on cheap pulp paper like like a paper book would have, he got Alex Nino to ink uh, Doug's drawings, and so that was a great combo, because Alex is a fantastic line man. And Doug Henderson is one of the most cinematic
1: of the dinosaur artists. Uh, Do you, so I read in one of your, in one of your blog posts that, that you went, you, 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 like you said, you met, uh, you both met your wives at about the same time. You had to both approve of each other's wives. Um, (laughs) You you went through all of the, his children's lives. You, You both experienced sort of life together. Um, yeah. is there a specific moment in Byron's life that's sort of, that, that's touching to you or?
0: I, I loved that when we're outside of business, he was an incredibly generous guy. You know, he, he, you, you used be the guy that took me out to dinner. And, uh, and then when I would be in New York, uh, he would, uh, he has members in the Friars Club. So we would work out together and, uh sometimes have dinner at the friars club together and when he was here i'd try to do the same for him but uh, usually he would end up taking me out harlan used to say the publishers always have to pay
1: (laughs) (laughs) i guess let me let me see if i can rephrase is um it's obvious that byron loved his friends um it, it seems like he was also a family man what was what was byron like as a how did you see Byron as a father?
0: Well, he was very kind and thoughtful when it came to his daughters. He, he just thought the world of his daughters and of Sandy too. Um, Sandy was a very strong person. Uh, she was a, she's a publicist, uh, a really top go-getter publicist. Uh, she did some of the publicity for the dinosaur book. Uh, so did her boss. And, and, I just thought the girls were just fantastic. They, they, they really tickled me and I love being around them and watching them grow up. I, I would love to see them now because I haven't seen them in so many years. They're not girls anymore. They're young women.
1: Yeah. I hear they're pretty accomplished. Like I said, we tend to leave that them alone. That wouldn't surprise around. me
0: at all yeah. that they're, they're accomplished.
1: They're actually they're on the episode of Expedition Unknown that's about the secret. I, I I don't know if you've seen it, but if you're interested, I have a link I can send it to you. You can watch it. It's got Sandy and both the girls in it.
0: Oh wow. Oh yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'll email you a link to it. Sure. Sandy used to tease Byron uh when I found the Atkins diet that lost about 30 pounds. <laughs> she she started teasing Byron that that he should uh follow my path. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, he was a kind of a tiny guy, wasn't he? I mean, he was, I hear he was tall, but kind of thin or no. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: uh, over the years, uh, he started (laughs) to get a dad bod.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the, I guess one of the downsides of being a publisher is you're, you're behind the curtains. You're like the, the, the wizard from the Oz. And And, and being a successful
0: publisher, you can afford
1: to go out to eat. Yeah. We don't, we don't have any. We don't have any pictures of byron like we've got i think there's maybe oh. three public pictures of byron oh um, he's a handsome guy yeah we've got uh, a yeah. those we're pictures i uh,
0: uh, i would say cross between matthew broderick and al pacino yeah those were really different days back then too the publishing industry is like the film business and the music industry is turned upside down uh, back then when you finished the book your job was done and then the book company took over. Did heavy promotions. They would like for the the dinosaur book, for example. Uh, I hit every. They paid for me to go to every bookstore from here to Seattle, and do signings and stuff. And that's all changed now. Now you finish the book, your half your job is done. Now you, as the author, have to go out and promote it on your own.
1: Was that that's, was that something that Byron did a lot? Did he travel around? promoting his uh, Byron
0: traveled with me to a lot of my uh, social engagements and uh, Sandy and, and her boss arranged for me to go on a lot of television shows, a lot of the morning TV shows. And it was, it was pretty fun, pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. I, re- I remember uh, uh, John Palencar was telling me he, that Byron did a interview in Cleveland about the dinosaur book on, mm-hmm. on some TV show. Uh, like a morning news segment kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Boy, the major coup that major coup that he pulled off was getting those twelve full color pages in Life magazine on the book. Holy cow! That was that was uh, like lightning striking. That was amazing. Well, he wasn't just a publisher; he was a really good writer too. He he wrote a lot of the stuff. Well, he wrote that uh, strip for the Lampoon that Ralph Reese illustrated.
1: Yeah, he did. Um, he did the anti advice column and some comic books. I forget the name of it. Oh, yeah. oh
0: that's, that's
1: funny. <laughs> yeah, he's he's done several books. He had uh, like a uh, not the Webster's dictionary, which was absolutely yeah. hilarious. Yeah, um, and and we co wrote Little Blue together. Yeah, but it, it, that but that doesn't. Those kind of books, it's it's odd. Except for not not the Webster's Dictionary. There's a there in in that book. There's an epilogue that's a very long story about um, sort of some things Byron loved as a child. It's just a story hmm. about New York and a story about Gershwin and all of these different things. But aside from that and Dragon World, um, there, there's there's not a whole lot that allows you to take a glimpse at at Byron the man. You know. There's Byron, the the author, the storyteller, uh, but but there's not a lot that allows you to take a glimpse inside of inside of his life. Right, even though he did do a
0: lot of publicity, but the publicity was never self-serving on his part. It was always in promotion of of someone else, one of his books or someone else. Like uh, well, like you were just saying, I I did a lot of the interviews for the the dinosaur book on the west coast but he did a lot on the east coast and yeah he made a lot of television appearances and but it wasn't about him at all it was always about the the
1: book uh i guess one thing since you said that aside from uh, as an aside from the podcast we are constantly looking for media of byron do you remember any interviews he gave that we could look up no,
0: not specifically but most okay. of the interviews that the, the tubist
1: did were for uh local morning tv shows yeah and we've I've tracked a, a, some of those down and they're all owned by like nbc and cbs and they all charge like 50 dollars a second for the footage it's crazy. oh my gosh. <laughs> you, you people in the film and movie business it's crazy <laughs> yeah. yeah i
0: hate that the gout's like that because it's it, you know, in many ways, this is a public benefit that you're performing here. You, you're not towing in the big bucks
1: no, <laughs> putting on the show. Definitely not. And yeah. It, and it is. It's it's crazy. If you go to them and you say this is for a nonprofit thing, even when we went and said this is for a charitable thing. No, they didn't budge. $50 a second. No transcripts. Man. No nothing. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny.
0: When I did. The, the blues portraits, originally I wanted to do them as trading cards, and I contacted Dennis Kitchen, who is my old friend, but also Robert Crumb's agent, and he said, Bill, do you notice anything unusual about Robert's choices? And I said, yeah, he did, the really ancient guys like Sun House. He said, yep, public domain. yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said, you're going to have to track down each of these musicians or their families or their estates and get their permission and probably have to pay them. Uh, because trading cards are considered commercial exploitation. So I thought, I said, well, I guess I just did them for myself. He said, would you consider doing them as a book? And I said, well, wouldn't I run into the same problem? He said, no, a book is considered a benefit to the public. It's huh. not considered exploitation like T-shirts or posters or prints.
1: Yeah, I think you were uh, you were saying that in another interview where you were going to put together a collection of your works. I think it was on a Masters of the Universe podcast where you couldn't publish just masters of the universe posters but you were going to put them all in a book because that was you were able to do that
0: yeah yeah different rules for books thank god
1: so byron met um byron met a couple of the hunters a couple of the people who found well the two groups that found um treasures from the secret Hmm. one was in chicago one was in cleveland byron met uh with both of them uh-huh. And there's a couple of weird things. It, did Byron's mother, was it Byron's mother, his secretary? Do you know? I know that's an odd question. Might have been. Yeah.
0: It, it wouldn't surprise me
1: at all. I think uh, Byron's mom yelled at one of them once and they were always curious. It was actually <laughs> Byron's mom. Um, but the second, the second group that met him in 2004 um, said that he was just, a, he, he was overjoyed that, that his book had, sort of carried on this legacy. And now this book, this book was published 40 years ago. Wow. How, how do you think? And, and it's, it's got a cult following our Facebook groups, mm-hmm. thousands of members, the the podcast gets, uh, Oh God, hundreds of uh, listens per episode per day. It's the crazy amount of fans of this book. How do you think Byron would feel about that? Knowing that this little, what seems to be a pet project, because it's something he never did again. He, he never sort of uh, dipped his feet into the treasure hunting world again. But how do you think he would feel that this little pet project has gained such a following 40 years later?
0: Oh, I, I think he'd be totally elated. I, I, you know, he loved all of the projects that he did, whether they were successful or not. uh, Because I, I think he, he enjoyed the process of creation. He enjoyed the process of working with the writers and the artists. And so each, each project he did had a personal meaning for him. And so I know with the dinosaur book, we were, we were amazed by the reception that book got. And I think he would have been amazed by the reception of, the book that you're talking about as well. I think you'd be really happy, really pleased.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's insane to me that this little book that, like I said, didn't even sell 25,000 copies. Uh, it did not make its money back, has such a following. Now you can't, you can't buy this book on, you can't buy it online anymore. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's nuts that this little thing that a group of people did just a group of friends did has, has, develop this sort of legacy and, and those and prizes
0: I, are still out there
1: yeah yeah well at least 10 of <laughs> them are. 40 years that's yeah. that's really amazing well we hope uh, a lot of things have changed a lot of parks have changed there's a lot of maintenance um i think that's that's the one of the big problems within the community that that they don't necessarily understand about byron is where so most of these seem to be practically solved it's just a uh, oh. I don't know if you've ever, um, when you, when, even if you were, if someone were to throw a key in your backyard and tell you exactly where it is in your backyard and tell you to go, Mm -hmm. you know, dig the key up or whatever, um, digging that hole, if you're a millimeter off, when you're digging the hole, you should, you're practically a mile away. You'll never find it. So most of these are practically solved. They seem to be, but, um, they haven't been found. And a lot of what people have problems with is uh, the parks that they're in are now federally protected or Mm. monuments that, that are in the puzzles have been removed. And um, people wonder if Byron would have had the forethought, you know, would he have thought 40 years later, you know, maybe these things aren't, maybe these clues aren't going to be around anymore. And, and, and if I if I could find out one thing about Byron, it would be it would be that. Did he put that much thought into his projects? Did he think about um, how the projects would would live over time or how they would evolve? Any of his projects? Or was he more of a let's do this passion project and put it out and how the audience receives it is how the audience receives it?
0: Well, the audience is is always the missing factor in in any creative project. It's really not complete until it goes out there. And then the, it's the audience who decides whether it's a hit or a miss, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: whether it's gonna live for a long time or not. And, uh, you know, that varies with the, the size of the audiences for each project as well. But I think he took each project that he did very, very seriously.
1: I guess it's just, it's one of those things that we'll never know. Like you can't go back in time and, and climb into someone's mind and ask their motivations or, you know, their plan.
0: You can't even go back in time yesterday and have a different lunch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't know that I have any more specific questions for you. I, 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 really just wanted to, my, my whole goal was to just, Like I said before, I'm asked to make a lot of judgment calls on the kind of person that Byron was and how he, um, how he thought. And I, I, I can't because I didn't know, I didn't know Byron. So I just really wanted to, to speak to someone that knew him well to sort of find out the kind of person that he was um, when, you know, when the cameras were off and, you know, when he Mm -hmm. wasn't in a suit. Um, Wasn't in a suit. I don't know if I ever saw Byron when he wasn't yeah. in a suit. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm
0: told he wore a suit to bed. Um, and he, and he, he wore really nice ones, too. In fact, <laughs> when, when I was doing the TV shows to promote the dinosaurs, uh, he would take my coat off and hand me his. <laughs> so I'd look better on camera.
1: That was... Oh, and man. see, <laughs> stories like that to me are priceless because it, it oh, yeah. it's it's taken, it, it you know, it's... It, it shows what Byron was like as just a person, you know, he was, this, this hunt is weird in that people study this specific book. And then they, because you have to, because the book is so vague, you kind of have to learn about the person that made it and what Mm they what they were like, what they, what inspired them. Um, like I said in the, in the intro, why he thought ducks honked, you have to learn those things so those kind of and and when you do that you tend to elevate the person maybe higher than you should you put them mm-hmm. on a slightly higher pedestal than you should and it's nice to be reminded that byron was just a a guy who you know yeah. who screwed up sometimes and had fun with his family and had fun with his friends it's nice to be reminded of that yeah
0: Yeah. Whenever I did a project with Byron, I was, I was always wary and always waiting for the the little bit of grit that was going to (laughs) be, you know, caught within the wheels of the project. There was always some irritant (laughs) and that, that was, that was really a constant. He was funny that way.
1: I, I said earlier that to, in the intro that people might not know your name and and that was for Mm -hmm. a reason i I didn't really know your name. Um, oh, I'm you, the hardest guy in the world to
0: collect because I, <laughs> I tell I tell young artists, if you want to be famous, do the same thing over and over and over again for years.
1: Oh, no, you're the you're the absolute easiest person to collect, at least for me, <laughs> because while I didn't know your name. The more I researched, the more I realized I own so much stuff that you've done. My my parents were not ab, not absent by any means, but they were very busy, and I was the mm-hmm. ki- they were the kind of person who were like you know sit down in front of the TV or you know here's a book or here's a comic. And the more I researched about you, the more I realized how much of your work shaped my childhood and shaped who oh. I am as a person. And I am I am deeply grateful for some of just. You know, the work you've done from from the little bit that you've done on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark to Masters of the Universe. You designed my favorite Skeletor. (laughs) Oh, cool. Thank you. You know that. Amazingly, that is Frank Langella's favorite role of everything he's done. Really? Yeah, I had I had to watch that movie again today. Like I got so excited about this interview and everybody getting together. So I watched Masters of the Universe again. And he's fantastic in that film but I was thinking like I, the the little blue brontosaurus really was my favorite book. And I really do have you know, all of these things. Like every time I read more about the things that you've done, it reminded me of something from my childhood and it, wow. it, it helped shape who I am. So thank you personally for that. Oh, you're welcome. I, I love hearing that. You know, as artists, we work
0: alone in a room doing what we do. And until, We have interaction with uh, the public or the fans or go to conventions and stuff. We really never know if our stuff is touching anybody or reaching them at all. So I I love getting feedback like that. I'm very thankful.